0: Well, good morning, Missio Church. What a joy to be with you this morning uh, as we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together and lift up his name. Uh, For those I haven't met, my name is Adam. Uh, It's my privilege to serve as one of the elders on staff here at Missio, Uh, and as always a great privilege to open God's word together. I can think of no other voice that we need to hear more uh, than the voice of the one true God as we open his word. And so, I don't know about you, but I give way too much airtime to my own voice throughout the week, to the voice inside this head, and so to take time together to hear his voice uh, is such a precious thing. And so I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 22 if you have a Bible. Uh, You can grab one in the pew in front of you if you don't, or it'll be on the screen as well, but we're continuing our series through the book of Psalms, a series we're calling The Songs of the Great King. So Psalm 22, I invite you to follow along as I read the word of the one true and living God. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, the Psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation." They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We pray that we would hear your voice this morning, and not my own. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would lift up our heads. We do thank you for this time together as your people, to worship and glorify you. And may through this time, may you be exalted. May we see you as you are and be transformed more and more into your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Psalm 22 is an interesting one because it's a bit of a hybrid. It doesn't necessarily fit neatly into one category within the Psalms, but Rather, it's this combination of both lament and praise. And as we read, maybe you notice, it begins in deep despair, but all of a sudden shifts to triumphant praise. It speaks to suffering and to pain, which all of us experience in some form or another. But there's a transformation that happens somewhere in here which is also what all of us long for, especially in the midst of pain. And so we're gonna witness a shift that takes place. Right? First in this outward expression, there's a shift from groaning, the beginning of the psalm, to praise by the end of the psalm, which is the manifestation of an inward shift that takes place, one of despair right, turning into hope. And we're fascinated, I think, when we witness such drastic transformation, when we see such a significant change, at the very least, it captures our attention. But usually it does more than that. When we see somebody go through such a change, such a shift, it gives us hope to think that maybe perhaps such a change could happen for us as well, in our lives as well, in our hearts and mind as well. That's why companies use in marketing before and after photos, right? To play on that in hopes that, well, maybe if that happened to him or to her, that could happen to me as well, right? So every diet, every exercise plan, you see the before and after photos, right? And if you really look closely, you think, well, yeah, they just put makeup on her in the after photo, right? Or yeah, he put on a dress shirt and they turned on some lights, right? Of course he looks better in the after photo, but it works. Or else they wouldn't use it over and over again. It's why we love the story of the athlete who goes to college as a walk-on and becomes the starter and the star of the team. And it's why it's amazing to us to see an artist take just a lump of clay that's useless and plain and transform it into something that's beautiful or very useful. It's why... For our family, my father ended up coming to faith after catering two different weddings for the very same couple and seeing the difference from the first to the second. The first, a couple who had abandoned the Lord, gets married. He caters the wedding. The Lord brings them back after they've been divorced. They get reconciled to one another. They get married a second time. My father caters that wedding of a couple now, same couple, but following the Lord. Right? And that transformation has such an effect, right? and seeing them up close and personal, the Lord used that to bring him to faith, which changed the spiritual trajectory of our family. And so in the psalm, the writer begins by expressing a sense of deep despair over his suffering and pain, but we get to see this transformation take place, this suffering transformed into praise. And so in this passage, we're going to see two important elements which deal with suffering. Psalm 22 presents, number one, a pattern of truth which addresses our suffering. We're going to see in this a pattern of truth which is so helpful and so useful to us as we go through suffering and we experience pain in this world, which is inevitable, right? There's a pattern of truth here which speaks to our suffering. The Bible speaks directly to our suffering, but most importantly, right, what we're presented with is the person of Christ who transforms our suffering, who leads us from despair into praise. So as I said, this psalm is about suffering, which is common to us all and presents hope, which is desired by us all. Right? And so in that sense, it speaks directly to us all. What it doesn't do, it doesn't necessarily answer the why of suffering. And that's one of the most common and and important questions related to suffering is why does God allow us to suffer if he is so good and so powerful? And for some, that experience of suffering and pain has caused you to doubt God's existence. But God can handle your doubts, your questions, your emotions. And we want you to know as a church, you don't need to pretend that you don't struggle with doubt or skepticism as a result of what you've been through. I trust and I hope that you will be loved and cared for in the midst of that pain and in the midst of your skepticism and in the midst of your doubt. But this passage that we're looking through today, it's not necessarily going to give you an answer to why you've gone through what you've gone through. I think it's going to present something even more important. The hope that you can be rescued. The hope that that suffering can be transformed to praise. And so first of all, what we see as we begin our way through this psalm is this pattern of truth which does address our suffering. Initially, it starts with this prayer of desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though it's easy for us maybe to read into that, anger and frustration and doubt. This is really, I think, not somebody who's doubting God's existence. This is not somebody who's skeptical of his presence. This is someone who recognizes he's in covenant relationship with God. This is my God, my God. He is my God. I'm turning to him, not doubting him, but turning to him, knowing that God is there, but he's struggling To find him. He's struggling to hear his voice amidst the agony of suffering. Because we see in the next few verses that this is someone that does have an intimate knowledge of who God is and has a proper fear of the Lord. And so then the pattern that we're presented with is this it's one of, I am this, yet you are this, and you have. Done this, right? That's the pattern we're about to see. I am, yet you are, and you have. In other words, this is how I'm doing. I am struggling. I'm hurting. I'm desperate. I'm, I'm in agony. This is how I'm doing as a result of what's going on in my life, as a result of what I see around me, as a result of what I'm going through. Here's how I am doing. I'm not okay. Yet, this is what I know to be true about who you are this is who you are and this is what I know that you have done right that's the pattern we see in these first 10 verses first I am verses 1 through 5 I'm I'm groaning I'm crying by day I'm not sleeping at night Right, because it appears that I'm forsaken by you and it, ap- it feels like I'm far away from you. That's how I am doing. Verse three, yet you are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. You're, you're worthy of worship. And here's what I know you've done. Right, verse four, in, our, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. I know that you delivered, that you rescued, that when our fathers trusted in you and cried out to you, you heard them and you saved them. And then back to verse six, but I am, I'm a worm, I'm, I'm not a man, scorned and despised, mocked, Right? Mocked for my very faith in you, for that which is most important to me, that which I hold most dear, I'm being mocked for, made fun of, despised, attacked over what is most important to me, my very identity as, as your child, as one that you have saved, as one that I've put my hope in. And yet, verse 9. You're the one who sustained my life from the moment of my birth, he says. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, verse 10. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. I am a worm. I am not a man. Yet you're the one. You're the one who has kept me. You've sustained me from the very beginning. You have been my God. I know that's who you are. And that's the pattern that we see two times here to address the suffering and the pain that he experiences, though this is what I'm going through, and it hurts. Yet this is the ultimate reality. This is what I know to be true about who you are and what you've done. He doesn't convince himself, you know what, it's it's not that bad. It's it's gonna be okay. No, the problem and the pain is real. The suffering that he's experiencing is real. The torment is real. The mocking that he's receiving is real. He's not trying to minimize it or convince himself that it's not there or that it's really not that bad. He embraces the fullness of the pain that he's going through, but then turns to a more ultimate and lasting reality, eternal and forever, that this is who my God is and this is what I know that he has done. See, when we stop short of that ultimate reality, we can find ourselves stuck in that cycle of despair and listening to that voice of desperation and loneliness and pain. See, the result of focusing just there right, on the pain and the suffering that, we've, that we're going through or have gone through, right, the response is one of despair. But worship is, begins to happen as we respond to the more ultimate reality of who God is and of what he has done. That's what shifts him from a place of despair to a place of worship is turning his focus. Yes, the pain may be very real and very true, but here's what's even more important and here's what's going to last forever, unchanging, this is who my God is. Worship is always a response to who God is and what he has done. And see, we struggle with this because we can't simply... When life's got us down, we can't simply change our response at times. We don't often have enough strength to simply change the way we think. But to change our focus, that there's a better, there's an unchanging truth to focus on, that shifts our response. And so the first place he draws from for that truth is the global history of salvation. Our fathers, here's what happened. When they turned to you, you delivered them. He knows that he's part of a family of God that has a history of salvation. And this is common in the Psalms for, for the writer to look back to the Exodus, to draw from God's story of saving his people from slavery in Egypt. He draws from that to inspire worship among the people of God, to look to their past, their history of salvation as a people. Because it starts in Exodus chapter 2 where they're enslaved in Egypt. They're under the hand of Pharaoh and it says in Exodus 2 that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He saw what they were going through. He heard their cries and he knew. And so he stretched out his mighty hand Right? rescued them from slavery so that they could worship him. And so he draws from that global history of salvation, what God has done in the past for his people, that there are people who have experienced his salvation. Because despair, again, it, it breeds a sense of isolation that we're alone. It breeds shame right, that we're going through this. But the reality is we've been brought into a family that has a long tradition of being rescued by the Lord, right? That is our family history. We're a part of that tradition. And so it's so important as a people of God that we know this history, that we know our place within it. Paul says in Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That that's our family history is one of incredible rescue by the Lord. And so parents tell the story to your children. Maybe you had the blessing of parents who told you the story of their salvation. If you didn't, then start that tradition of telling the story of salvation to your children so that they know what God is capable of. So that when they doubt his presence, they doubt his goodness, they recall the stories that their parents have told them, how God saved us, how God saved you, how he led you, from slavery to sin to salvation in Jesus Christ. Tell that story. Those who are older in the room, tell that story to the next generation of what God has done. Even this morning, talking with my brother Ron before the service began, almost every Sunday, the conversation inevitably goes to what God has done right, in his past, bringing him from darkness into light and how God taught him the scriptures. I'm grateful that as Missio has gotten older, there's more gray hair in the room. It's a good thing. Tell the story of God's faithfulness to the next generation. I'm starting to contribute a little bit to that. My mother tells me it's cute. (laughs) And my sisters try not to throw up. Church, this is an example of how we serve one another. Going through times of trial and difficulty and pain and suffering is to point one another to the ultimate reality of who God is and what he has done, right? to help turn one another. Because oftentimes it's so hard to lift up our own heads and be reminded of it. So to help one another by pointing each other to the truth of who God is and what he has done, reminding them of our family history. This is the faithfulness of our God. It's a wonderful way that we serve one another as we go through pain and suffering. The second place he draws from for truth is his own personal history there in verses 6 through 10 that on you I was cast from my birth. That's a powerful picture of an infant and his mother. When a baby's taken from the womb and starts to cry, where do they find peace and comfort? It's on the chest of their mother. That's where they feel a sense of security. That's where they're nourished. And he says, you know what? Well, yes, it may be that mother who's doing it. He paints this picture of God taking the child from the womb, placing him on the mother's breast that he could be satisfied and comforted and nourished. That God is the one orchestrating that, sustaining our lives from the very, very beginning. So he draws from his own history of salvation. And so overall in these first 10 verses, we find this pattern that's so helpful for us of rehearsing what God has done for others and rehearsing what God has done for us. Because the struggles of today often block our spiritual memories, don't they? The struggles that we're going through today often give us a sense of spiritual amnesia where we quickly forget what the Lord has done. We see this example I was reading through Exodus this week, and so it's fresh on my mind. But again, it just struck me where God does, you know, these 10 plagues are miraculous. They're up against the sea. The Egyptians are coming. He parts the sea and delivers them and they go out into the wilderness, right? That's chapter 14, chapter 15. Together, they sing this song to the Lord. They're worshiping him. They go out into the wilderness for three days, only three days. And they're grumbling because they're thirsty. Three days. After God parted the waters, they've forgotten what he has done. Chapter 15. 16, they grumble because they're hungry. Chapter 17, they grumble again because they're thirsty. Right? How quickly, in the midst of pain and suffering, they forget the faithfulness of God. And so the habit of recalling what God has done reminds us of the truth that God will be faithful today just as he was faithful yesterday. So it's a useful pattern. But the truth is, it's not enough. It comes up short. It's not a guarantee for us that we'll overcome pain and suffering. Because as I said, it's not always as simple as just snapping out of it. No, the person of Christ, who's so clearly foreshadowed in this passage, he alone is our guarantee that suffering can be transformed to praise. Some think that if we do enough good that, you know, God will keep bad things from happening. Some think if we just build up enough spiritual strength, then we'll be able to face and endure the bad things. But our Creator knows the reality that you don't have enough willpower, and so He graciously made a way. And so Psalm 22 presents a person of Christ, most importantly, who transforms our suffering. And we know that all of the scriptures, including the Psalms, points to Jesus, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's why we call this series the Songs of the Great King. This Psalm has a very obvious, we don't have to search for it, very obvious connection to Christ with several direct quotes that we find in the Gospels. Right, This initial cry, Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34, three in the afternoon as Jesus is on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The mocking that we read about in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Mark 15.29 says that those who passed by, as Jesus was on the cross, derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 8, what they're mocking him for, they're saying, He trusts in the Lord and let him deliver him. Right, Mocking his faith. Matthew 27 records the words of the chief priests, it says, and the scribes and the elders. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, they mock him, saying the very same thing. He trusts in God, then let God deliver him now, mocking the faith that he has claimed. The thirst that he experiences, down in verse 15 of Psalm 22, my tongue sticks to my jaws. We see in John chapter 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The division of his clothes, the casting lots for his garments, in Psalm 22:18, "They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." Same thing, Mark chapter 15, verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. We are clearly intended to read and to reflect on this psalm as though it's sung by Jesus, prayed by Jesus. It is so clear. Right? This is not primarily David's song. One to read as though he's the one praying it. And we could say, well, you know, verse 1, my God, my God, why, that Jesus was simply quoting that. Right? It wasn't David being prophetic. Jesus was just quoting. And certainly, he was, well, he was quoting this psalm. Some think that he may have quoted this entire psalm. But regardless, we know clearly it was on his mind. Whether he quoted the entire thing on the cross or not, we know, obviously, this psalm was on his mind. But we could say, well, Jesus was just quoting back from this. But you look at verse 8, where the quote there is from the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders Right? He trusts in God, let him deliver him now. David was prophesying what even those who were evil were going to say. Or what becomes even more clear is the physical pain that it describes in verses 11 through 18 of Jesus going through the pain of the cross. Right? Written a thousand years before the crucifixion, the psalm gives a remarkably accurate and detailed description of what Jesus went through. Look, Read verse Twelve and following, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. And listen to what he prays here. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. We don't have every moment of David's life recorded. But we're fairly certain he didn't go through the things that he's writing here. Had his hands and feet pierced? People dividing his garments? This guy was the king. It's unlikely that anybody stripped him of his clothes and divided his garments and pierced his hands and feet. It's so clearly pointing to the physical pain that Christ endured on the cross. So we're not meant to see it even as as David's song, but as the song and prayer of Christ. And we're not meant to primarily and initially sing this as our song, right? Though that's our temptation when we read the word I, we're tempted to, to sing and pray the word I as if we're the one singing this, and eventually we do sing this, but it's first of all and best understood as a song and prayer of Jesus, of what he's praying and then leads us into praying. It's like when you've you know, got a song that you love and then it's covered by another band and it's just not the same. And you're going, they weren't intended to sing that. Right? I remember as a teenager, my, my dad's favorite musician was Bob Seger. And uh, I can still see it in my mind, sitting in my room, I'm listening to the radio, and they say, you know, back from commercial, and we're going to play you Bob Seger's Turn the Page, covered by Metallica. And so I grab my, my cassette and put it in my boombox because I know this is my dad's, you know, Bob Seger's my dad's favorite artist. Turn the Page is one of his favorite songs, so I'm going to record this. And I had enough sense even then, after I heard the song, to go, that wasn't intended for Metallica, just they should have just stuck with Bob Seeger, right? It's not the same. They ruined a perfectly good song, right? <laughs> we are not intended right, to sing this, pray this apart from Christ. Right? We are intended to listen to this, to read this as his prayer. And then we're invited into that. Right? This is his song which is so important because Jesus does far more than just give us an example here of how to suffer. Though he does that. He does far more for you than just sit by your side while you go through hard times. Though he does that. He doesn't simply endure with you. He endures suffering for you. And all of its effects. And so yes, he can identify with us. He's experienced the long sleepless nights of crying out to God. But here's where he's different and supreme. Jesus trusts the entire time. And if we're honest, we do not. He clings to the Father the entire time. And we do not. He never questions God's holiness and perfection. He never questions God's care for his life. He cries out to God over and over and over, and often we do not. We continue to listen to the voice in our own head about our own worth and our own value and our own struggle. And so Jesus endured suffering to take upon himself the full effect of, of the curse that was the result of our sin. He endured it for us, all of it. And see, when we're going through suffering, we, we wanna know that we're not alone. It's so comforting to know that we're not alone, that somebody else has gone through this. And Hebrews 4 says we, we don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's able to sympathize with our weakness, right? He's in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin, it is helpful to know somebody has been through what we are going through. I remember a few years back when we lost my mother-in-law to cancer and it was a tough and painful six weeks. One of the most helpful conversations that I had was with Ben Meath, one of our members here. There were others who, who helped and who prayed and who cared and it was meaningful, but Ben had experienced almost the exact same thing with his mother. And so when he came up to me after a members meeting and said, this is what I went through, it was almost identical to what we were experiencing. And so to know that, that was more helpful than anything anybody said. It's because somebody else had felt the same thing. And the truth is, I can't sympathize with all of your hurt, with all of your pain, And yet Jesus experienced every aspect of our suffering as we see it laid out here, the physical aspect of it, the psychological aspect of it, the spiritual torment, right? Being forsaken by God. He experienced it in every way because he's experiencing the curse that was the result of our sin, which is what brought suffering into the world. I mean, for the person with an unfaithful spouse, I haven't walked in your shoes I can't fully sympathize with what you're going through, but I know for sure that you can talk to Jesus because his bride, the church, is unfaithful, often unfaithful to him. And yet he's loved and forgiven us. And so we've experienced his forgiveness and love when we've been unfaithful. And all the depth of the pain that comes with that. And so we see him suffering in this psalm in every way. And that was an essential part, as Jesus said, to his very mission. Over and over again in the Gospels, he predicts what's about to happen. And he says to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected and mocked by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He said to them, what I'm, what I'm, here's what I'm about to go through. And a critical piece of it was, I'm about to suffer and be mocked and be beaten and be killed. He endured that suffering on our behalf. Not only that, Jesus, as we see, endured suffering for us so that then he can lead us, his people, into an assembly of joyful praise. He went through all of that, endured all of the effects of our sin and all of the suffering that comes with that so then he can lead us, a people who experience the pain and suffering of this world, can lead us together into an assembly of joyful praise. And so this is where it begins to shift, where his suffering is endured, where salvation happens. Now here comes the spread of joy as his groaning turns in to praise. If you look at verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Right? Jesus does what we ought to do, but often fail to do. He's perfect in suffering, crying out to God, do not be far off from me. Come quickly to me. Deliver my soul. Save me. And he says, God answers. At the end of verse 21, you have rescued me. And so Jesus Is resurrected and he takes his place, his exalted position over us. And we see in the remaining verses 22 through 31 that groaning now gives way to praise. First, it's seen in the congregation, verse 22 I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. But again, Initially, we read the word I, and that's something we think, okay, I need to aspire to this. I need to do this. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. And we should, and we will. But initially, we've got to read that as Jesus saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. We've got to first see him as the choir director leading us, the choir of people who have been through pain and suffering and experienced the agony of our own sin and of other people's sin. And now are being called together by Jesus who's saying, I will tell of your name in the congregation. I'm going to lead my brothers and sisters to a place now of praising you. Calling all of them together who are hurting and suffering and struggling under the bondage of sin. Together let's rejoice. That's how we first read these words as a call of Jesus to us to worship him out of a place of suffering. And, And Hebrews 2 makes it clear that these are the words of Jesus. It says this in Hebrews 2.10, It was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he's, or whoever wrote Hebrews, is attributing this next verse to, Psalm 22, to Jesus, that he said, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's saying those are the words of Jesus in Psalm 22. That there's no longer isolation and shame. He's not encircled by evildoers. Now here we are, the congregation together, worshiping. Verse 23, we're called together, right? He says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. That's his call to worship. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Right? What happens as we come together as a congregation, responding to his call to worship, is those who have been afflicted are satisfied. I mean, we enjoy coming together, it's wonderful to be together. And to have this band lead us and to sing praises. But none of our worship leaders can make this claim. Only Jesus can make this claim that when we come together as the afflicted, we are satisfied under him through the worship that he has brought. And so together we praise the Lord. No longer in isolation, no longer feeling the shame that offering our suffering is accompanied by. And he says in verse 25, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. What he's talking about when he says, my vows I'll perform, it was common when those who are going through difficult time to make a vow that God, you bring me through this and I will worship you. Right? That's the vow that he's talking about, a vow of suffering. Bring me through this, God, and I promise I will worship you. Right? And then what would happen right, is an offering of thanksgiving. Then when God does bring you through, right, is to throw a party. And that's what he's talking about, that I'm inviting others to this party of thanksgiving, recognizing what God has done. When he says, my vows I'll perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Jesus is saying, look, I did it. I've completed it. And now I'm throwing a feast of thanksgiving and the afflicted are invited to enjoy this feast, to participate in this party that I'm throwing. Right? So that you too can be satisfied through what I've gone through. Right? That's the offer of the gospel, that we now can be satisfied, can find salvation through what he endured and the salvation that God promised for him. Now we're invited to that party. The vows have been completed. And so that's why he says in twenty-six that the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, that those who seek him shall praise the Lord. We as a congregation are invited. And at the end of the service, we come and we eat of this meal because we're invited by him to receive and to be satisfied by the suffering that he endured, that he completed it for us. And so there's an invitation for us to come and benefit from that feast. And then we see in the last few verses, 27 through 31, how it shifts. The worship and the joy spreads from the congregation to the ends of the earth. That there's global transformation. This ever-expanding circle of blessing. Right? Just as God promised to Abraham, through you the nations will be blessed. That God's reign would extend through the entire world. World, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, he says in 27. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. That his reign will extend throughout the entire world. As Jesus goes through suffering and is raised to glory. That everyone, he says, from the prosperous to those who are dying. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, those who are much and those who are little. Everyone. That that's the effect of the work of the cross in bringing global transformation to the suffering that we endure. Not only to the whole world, right, but to the generations to come. In verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's how complete the transformation that he offers is. To the ends of the earth and for generations to come. It's not momentary relief. It's not momentary satisfaction. It's not, okay, now I'm having a good day, praise the Lord, right? But knowing that tomorrow's gonna be a struggle. No, it's eternal and lasting satisfaction to the ends of the earth and for all time for those who come, that all who trust in him can find this as the source of their comfort and satisfaction and be transformed into a people of God worshiping him in the midst of pain. That this message is for people everywhere of all time. And the essence of that message, at the end of verse 31, what is it that's being proclaimed? That he has done it. John 19, verse 30, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. From the beginning of this psalm to the end pointing to the cross. It is now finished. He's heard our prayers. He has fulfilled his promises. He endured suffering for us so that we would praise him. He suffered deeply as we've seen and it was not in vain. Yeah, the innocent suffered unjustly Didn't deserve it, but it was not in vain. His suffering accomplished its purpose to transform you and me, families and nations, and now there's no other sacrifice needed. And I'm telling you, there's no other solution that you can find. There's nothing else that you need to strive for because he Has done it. Call out to him and you will be saved. It doesn't necessarily answer the why of everything that you've been through, but here's something so more valuable the Savior who transforms it who knows exactly what you've been through and going through and has felt the full effect of suffering and pain and now calls us together as a hurting and broken people to worship him and to declare that to one another, that though this is who I am, and some days it's not pretty, this is who I know you are, and this is what I know you've done. You've heard it from his word. This is who he is. And this is how faithful he has been. And the reality is this week, you're going to struggle to believe that. You're going to forget about it. Tonight, tomorrow, you're going to forget about, I'm going to forget about what God has done. But thank God it doesn't depend on our strength. It doesn't depend on my strength for you or your strength for me, though we can serve one another in that way. It depends solely and squarely on Jesus that he endured it perfectly, right, that we might rest in him. He Has done it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and for all that he has done. God, I needed these words from you to hear your voice. It's been a tough few days. God, I've witnessed, and I'm sure others have witnessed and have felt the burden of, of our own struggle and sin and witnessed just the devastation around us. Yet I've seen too much this weekend in people that are hurting and hopeless. Seen teenagers turn to drugs. Seen grown men turn to alcohol. I've seen a young man and a family grieve the loss of a fourteen-year-old. God, I needed these words. Be reminded that Jesus has done it. And I don't know the suffering and the pain of each one in this room, but you do fully and completely. You've known them from the moment of their birth. And so, God, may we turn to you. Rejoice in the effectiveness of your suffering for us. And sing together under your leadership. You as our director now, we join in the singing of your praise. And so thank you for leading us, for singing so beautifully of the work that you accomplished on the cross. Thank you for bringing us into your feast that we might give thanksgiving now for the work that you accomplished. And In your name we pray, amen.